Well, good morning once again. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2? And while you're doing that, I'm going to kind of set this up for the new folks. So before we stop to do a special series entitled The Top 10 Lies of the Devil, we were working our way through Paul's epistle to the Philippians. But instead of going through it verse by verse, which is our normal style of teaching here at Calvary, I believe the Lord wanted us to study it topically instead of expositionally. And as we said, every book in the New Testament has a theme. And so I thought it might be beneficial to build a series of messages around the main theme of the book of Philippians, which is joy. Joy. Now, what makes that theme so powerful is that Paul wrote this letter while he was a prisoner in Rome. As we pointed out at the beginning of this study, Paul was waiting to stand trial before Caesar to defend himself against the false accusations that had been leveled against him by the Jewish leadership there in Israel. These accusations were extremely serious, that Paul was an insurrectionist, an inciter of riots around the empire. In Roman law, these crimes were capital offenses, and so if found guilty, would have resulted in Paul's execution. And yet... The theme of this epistle is joy in the Lord. Now, we've, so far we've looked at four of these main points that we've looked at up into chapter 2, verse 12. Joy in fellowship. And then we looked at joy in proclaiming the gospel. There's a, there's a real joy that comes when God opens the door for a, for a Christian to share the gospel. And Paul mentions that. The, number three was joy of faith. Four, joy in unity. And this morning we start number five, joy in service. So let's look at verse 12, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So three times in these verses, Paul talks about joy. He uses the word rejoice, but joy in serving God, who allowed him to bring the gospel to those living in the city of Philippi. When he said, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering, that's the language of martyrdom. He was preparing to be martyred if that was to happen. He said, if, if, I'm being, if I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. He probably had in mind the riot that took place in Philippi when he was there preaching the gospel. You can read about that in Acts 16, okay? How he was traveling the city, preaching the gospel, and one day a young gal, probably about 16 years old, began to follow him, and she was uh, all the time saying, listen to these men, they're servants of the Most High God. Well, after a few days, Paul's like, you know, man, I really don't want the devil advertising my ministry. <laughs> so he turns and casts the demon out of her. She had a demon of divination. We read in Acts 16, she brought her masters much profit by her fortune telling. People paid good money to have her, you know, uh, tell their fortune. Well, when this happened, I mean, you know, as the word spread um, and all, uh, a big thing broke, a big brouhaha happened, okay? And uh, so the city magistrates grabbed Paul and Silas and, you know, had them beaten as, you know, as those inciting a riot and threw them in, uh, the stocks and in prison, uh, the Philippian jailer is mentioned in Acts 16. Well, the good thing was that God saved the Philippian jailer 
his family, and maybe some others by what Paul experienced. But he, he's probably referring to that because, again, the charges against him were everywhere this guy goes, riots break out. Well, that wasn't his fault. The devil didn't want Paul preaching the, the gospel. People were getting saved. They were turning away from their idols. The idol makers were, you know, the goldsmiths and silversmiths and the idol makers were, were losing money, and they were really upset. Ephesus, wow, that was a big deal in Ephesus, right? So he's probably referring to this, how that, you know, when he was ministering to them and this big riot broke out, and, uh, and, and now we have guys that are saying everywhere I go, I'm a troublemaker, a rabble rouser, an inciter of riots and things. Uh, and so he was eventually arrested, sent to Rome, and now he's under house arrest waiting to stand before Caesar. It took about two years, from what I understand, before you could actually see Caesar. He's a busy guy, no doubt. Um, but he, uh, he knew that these charges, if he was found guilty by Caesar, would have led to his execution. And yet he still rejoiced that he was able to serve God by bringing the gospel to the people of Philippi and then to go on to serve those who had gotten saved, who had become Christians. And he's causing him to say, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. All that matters to me is the day I stand before Jesus and he recounts all the things I did for him in his name. And my rewards as a faithful servant are there. But it doesn't matter what happens to me on this earth. My whole life revolves around giving the gospel out, strengthening the people of God. And if it means my life, so be it. At one point he said, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place anyways. I have a desire to go home to be with Jesus, which is far better than staying here. But I want to stay here, God wants, that I can minister to you guys a little longer. One pastor had this to say about Paul's attitude in facing death with joy so that others might have the gospel preached to them. He said, and I quote, Unfortunately, many believers experience joy in much the same way as the world does. When circumstances are favorable, they are happy. But when circumstances are unfavorable, they are sad and sometimes even resentful. The only things that bring them joy are those things that promote their own interests and welfare. But when believers seek to do, to do the Father's will and please Him, they view sacrifice for Him with joy. The reason many believers know little about Paul's kind of joy is because they know little about Paul's kind of sacrifice and what he faced in making those sacrifices. It is difficult for self-centered worldly believers to understand how missionaries can live for years under primitive, demanding, and often dangerous conditions, yet still maintain their joy. Through it all, they rejoice because, like Paul and the Philippians, they offer their lives as a continual sacrifice to God. They have learned that the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. They have the same attitude as Peter and the other apostles who, after being beaten and ordered uh, to not speak in the name of Jesus, went on their way uh, from the presence of the Jewish high council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name, end quote. That's right out of Acts 5, verses 40 and 41, that last part. There are those, and I like to say all believers, but it's not all believers because we do have carnal Christians in the body of Christ. God love them, they're saved. But the goal of your Christianity is not just to get saved, is to get saved and to grow and be used by the Lord and so on. But thank God for those men and women who are in the mission field who are, or missions organizations that support people that bring the gospel to um, various parts of the world, difficult areas. It reminds me of a true story that happened in the 1800s. During the time they were using telegraph communication to communicate to people uh, in far places. And there was a missions organization that wanted to send a, a, a message of encouragement to their missionaries in the mission field. So they dispatched a, a representative, went to the local telegraph office with this message. When he landed on the desk and the, and the telegraph operator looked at it, he was counting things. And when he came back with a price, he was dumbfounded, this person from this missions organization. 
He didn't realize that back then they charged by the letter. And he didn't have the money. The organization just didn't have the money to send a message. In fact, as he thought about it, he really only had enough money to send a single word. What word would you have chosen to send to the missionaries on the mission field? One word. You know the word he chose? Others. I think that said a lot. Others. And that probably impacted these missionaries as well as anything could have. Guys, there is great joy that comes from serving God. But only if you have the right mindset. The mind of Christ, not the mind of the world. Worldly Christians don't find great joy in serving anybody. And let me just say this. The life of a Christian in many ways is exactly opposite the life we lived as unbelievers. That life was often selfish, where we were at the center of our universe and everything and everyone revolved around us. Back in those days, we dreamed of being served. The ultimate fantasy, to have enough money to hire people to wait on us. But the thought of serving others wasn't something that was very exciting or brought any joy to our hearts. But then we got saved. And Jesus turned our whole world upside down. Technically, he turned it right side up. Because sin had turned it upside down. But you understand what I'm saying. We got saved and Jesus turned our world upside down. And we began to think like Jesus. Who said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus taught us that there are no volunteers in the body of Christ. Only servants. Servants that God has entrusted the work of his kingdom to. It's a pretty important responsibility. Look, as our society becomes more and more selfish and self-focused, the less we will understand or be willing to fulfill the role of a servant. Now, that's the world. But I see this attitude, this mentality even come into the church. It's getting harder and harder to find people who are willing to serve in the church. Now, we've been blessed with a lot of wonderful servants in our church. But a church should be a place where there's, it's not a spectator sport. It's a place where everyone should roll up their sleeves and say, look, what can I do for the work of Christ? But it's getting harder and harder to find people than it was over 40 years ago when I first got into ministry. My wife and I have been in ministry now 43 years. And in those early days of ministry, we had people that really would come to us and say, hey, look, can I serve over here? Or what can I help with or whatever? We still have some of that, but it's not as much as it used to be. Again, it's getting harder and harder to find people willing to serve in the church. Most people come to church, most of the people who come into the church are looking to be served and not to serve. But there is no shortage of people who are looking for joy and happiness in their lives. That's why they often come to church. They're looking for some joy and happiness in their life. Here's what most of them don't understand. Happiness in life comes not as a direct pursuit, but as a byproduct of serving God and others with our lives. Remember what Jesus said. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. On that note, turn to John 13. Let me read these verses and then we'll come back to it, read it again and give you some context, okay? But right now I just want to fire it out there for you okay john 13 and we'll frame the context in just a minute but let me just read verses 13 to 17 where jesus said to his disciples you call me teacher and lord and you say well for so i am if i then your lord and your teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet for i have given you an example that you should do as i have done to you most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word blessed or blessed in verse 17 is the Greek word makarios, makarios, which literally means, oh, how happy, oh, how happy. It's the same Greek word that Jesus used when he 
gave the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, but actually the Beatitudes really are the introduction. It lays the groundwork for what comes after. And I think they run from verse 3 of chapter 5, Matthew, through verse 12, I believe. And then starting with 5.13 through the end of chapter 7, Jesus then gives the practical uh, characteristics, qualities, uh, responsibilities of a child of God. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount was not Jesus preaching to the multitudes. He was preaching to his disciples. This is kingdom living. You can't live the kingdom life if the king isn't in your heart. All right, we'll come back to that. But nine times the Lord Jesus said blessed in the introduction to the the Beatitudes, right? I'll just read to you Matthew 5, verses 3 to 5. Blessed, or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he goes on. So again, guys, the word makarios, blessed, literally means, oh, how happy. But listen to me now. It's not the kind of happiness that the world defines as happiness. This Greek word describes a person who has happiness which is rooted in the heart and not in outward circumstances. We would call it joy. Joy. You see, guys, our English word for happy is based on an old Anglo-Saxon word, hap, which means chance, as in whatever happens or happenstance. Earthly happiness is circumstantial, based on circumstances. Therefore, it is uncertain, temporary, and insecure because circumstances change. Sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're negative. Whereas the blessedness that Jesus talked about, as we have defined it, happiness or joy, the happiness or joy of the Christian life is not temporary or uncertain. Listen, it is solid and unshakable because it's rooted in our relationship with Jesus Christ, and that relationship is solid, or in other words, permanent and unshakable. Guys, this is the desire of God for all of his children, that our hearts be filled with joy, that our hearts be filled with joy. And this was the goal of Jesus' teaching here in John 13, that true happiness in the lives of his people is not based on outward circumstances. Again, that's how the world defines happiness. Whatever, happen, whatever you're going through outwardly, if it's positive and you're happy, if it's negative, you're sad, and so on. It's always what's going on around you, not in you. But the happiness that Jesus talked about here in John 13 or in the Beatitudes is more akin to joy. And that only comes when you have the inward attitude of joy planted in your heart. How does that happen? 2 Peter 1.4, Peter says that once we gave our hearts to Christ, the Spirit of God moved in, and at that point, we, become, we became partakers of God's divine nature. You have to understand something. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all that fruit of the Spirit are really the attributes of God. You realize that. These are unique to God's nature. Sure, unbelievers can have cheap counterfeits of these priceless attributes. But that's all they are, is cheap counterfeits. Only God has the real thing. And the only way for us to experience the real joy and peace and love is for God to live in us. And that happens when you open your heart to Christ and invite him in. You become children of God, partakers of the divine nature, and now you have access. Listen to me. You have access to these attributes. It doesn't mean you have to walk in them or live them out. Just because agape love has been planted in my heart by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, verse 5 tells me, he poured it into me when I accepted Christ, God's agape love. I can still be selfish. I can still love myself more than others. I mean, I can still live according to human love, which is self-centered oftentimes and, uh, and self-focused and so on. I don't have to submit to the Spirit to let the Spirit live His life through me. This is the battle. Galatians 5. 
The flesh is warring against the spirit to have dominance. The spirit, Holy Spirit, and working through my new spirit is, is working to have dominance. And these two are in constant warfare with each other so that I don't always do the things I want to do, Paul said. Here's, here's the good news. We get to decide who dominates. Which nature dominates? The old fallen nature or the new nature in Christ? And how do you do that? You walk in the spirit. You keep drawing close to God. James 4 tells us, and he'll draw close to you. And the more he draws close to you, the more he's going to live his life through you. That's the goal. Just please indulge me for just a second longer with regard to the Beatitudes. As we look at the Beatitudes, and if you study the Sermon on the Mount, which we did years ago, you find out that Jesus opens up with these nine Beatitudes, which become the foundation, really, um, of happiness. And then he goes on. But as we look at the Beatitudes, they seem almost... <laughs> paradoxical because they're completely reversed from what we i know definitely the world would have equated happiness with listen to this jesus told us in the beatitudes the really happy people are you ready the poor in spirit the mourners the meek the hungry and thirsty the merciful the pure in heart the peacemakers the persecuted and the reviled I, mean, I can imagine us rattling that list off to a few people we're witnessing to, and they look at us straight in the eye and say, well, maybe I don't want that kind of happiness. <laughs> and that's because to most people, guys, this whole thing sounds absolutely absurd. Blessed are the sad, they're the happy ones. Blessed are the hurting, they're the happy ones. It's as one writer said, and I quote, it's as if Jesus crept into the large display window of life and changed all the price tags. The things we consider of little or no value, Jesus assigns great value and worth to, like humility and servanthood. Look, we're Americans, right? And one of the greatest documents ever written, certainly in America, for America, but that the world has ever seen, excluding the Bible, is the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence states that all men, all people are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Guys, that means that each of us has the freedom to pursue our own personal definition of happiness. And because so many people define, in our culture today, define happiness as being rich, successful, beautiful, famous, popular... That's what most people chase after. We have a culture that's consumed with the outward. Social media has just really fed into that. The, the quest for popularity is incredible. Some people live on social media. You know, I don't know, TikTok, that's something, right? There's other ones, I don't know. I, I'm not any of them. I don't keep up with any of them. I know Facebook is in there. Of course, that's changed. Meta now. Twitter, that's been changed. It's X now. You can't tweet anymore because, you know, it's not Twitter. It's a mess. Uh, but people, people are consumed with ways to get their, themselves out there. You know, Jesus, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. He put it this way. He said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess whether you possess fame, money, success, popularity, material things. And guys, we would do well to listen to Jesus. He made us. He knows what will make us happy. And through these Beatitudes, he is basically saying that it's pure foolishness to think that you can fill the void in your soul with the junk of this world. And yet, how many people are feverishly trying to do that very thing? Pursuing feverishly the elusive concept of happiness. What they don't realize, and again, we're talking about it, what they don't realize in their pursuit of happiness is that true happiness is not found in a possession or in a pleasure. It's found in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that is because true happiness comes when a person's empty heart is filled. But understand, you can't fill an empty heart with anything 
this fallen world has to offer. Another author put it this way, said, and I quote, Jesus has come into the world to announce to man that the tree of happiness doesn't grow in the cursed earth, end quote. Only Jesus can fill that emptiness inside. Here's the deal. In the Bible, God tells us that he made every one of us with a God-shaped void in our hearts. The world doesn't understand that. I mean, when you share the gospel with people, hopefully they begin to realize what's going on. But they're like the woman in John 4. This poor gal was so empty inside, she thought a human relationship, that's what I need, married and divorced five times, was now living with a guy out of wedlock. And Jesus talked to her. I'll paraphrase. You're trying to fill up the emptiness in your soul with human stuff. It, it doesn't work. you gotta come and you got to come to me. If you trigger the water that I give, the gospel, Jesus, you'll never thirst again. In fact, it'll be like a, a fountain of living water bubbling up within you unto eternal life. Every one of us has a God-shaped void in our heart. The world doesn't often realize this, so they try to stop it with everything they can find. But only Jesus Christ can fill that void. But listen, if this is true, we know it is, then why are so many Christians, underline that word, who have Jesus in their heart? Why are so many Christians depressed and unhappy in their Christian lives? Well, that's a great question. And to answer it, we've got to go back to John 13. And we've kind of already answered it already, but let's look at John 13 again. Now, as we just said, the key to, key to living a happy, joyful life uh, is first to receive Jesus into your heart. We just talked about it, be born again. Uh, that's true. That's where it starts. And remember now, in the upper room, in John 13, Jesus was talking to his disciples. This was not the multitudes he was witnessing to. These men had given their hearts to Christ. They were all saved except for Judas, and he was, uh, was about to leave and carry out his betrayal of Christ. But listen, a, a person can have Jesus Christ in their heart and not really live out that fullness, that, that, that um, abundant life he talked about in John 10. To experience the happiness Jesus spoke of in different places uh, in the Gospels, especially the Beatitudes, to, to, uh, to experience the happiness that he talked about in the Beatitudes on a daily basis, we must first listen to what he said. That's why you're here, hopefully. Take it to heart. Here's the other one. Obey what he said. Obey the words in particular of John 13, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed or oh, how happy are you if you what? Do them. It's not enough to know them. You got to do them. I think it was James say that, or it was John. person who comes to church, hears the word being taught, but doesn't go out and do anything about it, is deceiving himself, herself. You read this and go, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Somebody might be prone to say, well, if I know and do what things? Well, again, context is important. As we come to John chapter 13, we come to the last night that Jesus was spending with his disciples before the cross. In this final section before the cross, he gives them one final discourse. This discourse ran from chapter 13 in John's Gospel, technically through the end of chapter 16, but I include chapter 17 also. Why? Because he starts teaching them in the upper room. At the end of chapter 14, they leave the upper room, walk there, start walking through the streets of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. He stops briefly at the Golden Gate, which was carved with, with grapevines and so on in the light of the full moon. It was Passover. He always had Passover during the full moon. He stops and teaches them about the vine and branches, John 15. They continue on as he continues to teach them. At one point, he stops and offers up this incredible prayer to his father. As we have said, it was like being allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies and eavesdrop on what Jesus and the Father, what he was talking to his father in this very intimate prayer. But he did it in front of his disciples. Which means, in my mind, that he was not only praying for them, he was also continuing to teach them. Read John 17 as a further uh, furtherance of the 
last discourse, okay? But the discourse, if you study it, there were a lot of important principles Jesus brings up. Stuff he had already taught them before during his three and a half years of ministry. But he was going to the cross the next morning. And when a person's facing death, they gather the closest people around them, their families, and they're not going to waste time with small talk. What's the weather for next week? How the Cubs do? You know? No. You're going to want to pass along to the people you love the most important things you've learned over the course of your life. Or if you're Jesus, the most important things you have taught the men you love with all your heart over the course of his ministry. Now, one of the things he wanted to stress to them one more time was the principle of the importance of servanthood. Again, the Lord's comments on servanthood were not new. He had taught them the great, that greatness in the kingdom of God was based on them becoming, listen, lowly servants, not worldly lords. We'll look at that more next time. But he had taught them this lesson numerous times, I'm convinced, over the course of his ministry. That being great in the eyes of God, in the kingdom of God, is not like being great in the kingdom of the world. In the kingdom of the world, unbelievers measure greatness in how many people you are over. In the kingdom of God, greatness is measured by how many people you put yourself under to serve. But the problem was they had not taken that teaching to heart. Why do I say that? Because what led Jesus to stop at the very beginning of the Passover Seder with his disciples in the upper room that night before his crucifixion and start washing their feet was they began to have this running argument again. It was a running argument. It wasn't the first time they had argued about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They believed Jesus Christ, even at this point, was about ready to establish the kingdom. They wanted to know who was going to sit in his right hand and on his left hand. Who was going to be the greatest in his kingdom? And, you know, they had this argument once again in the upper room. We know that from Luke 22, verse 24. Now, I can't imagine what Jesus was feeling. Because in his humanness, he must have been grieved. For three and a half years, he had been teaching them and demonstrating for them what greatness is all about in the kingdom of God. And here they are, he's just hours from the cross, and they're arguing who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, in those days, because people walked on dirt roads with open sandals, their feet got dirty. They didn't sit at tables to eat like we do. They had pieces of wood on the floor, like a block of wood, and they would recline at an angle on the floor, propped up with one elbow on a pillow, and they would eat with the other hand. Well, depending on how many people were in the room, you had enough people, you know, at a 45-degree angle, eventually your face is going to come kind of close to somebody's 30 feet or somebody's feet, which would not be so appetizing. So if somebody invited you to eat a meal at their house, if they were well-to-do and, and uh, had servants, it was always the job of the lowliest servant. Lo it, it was the most humiliating job anyone could do so they always left it for the lowliest of the servants and they would meet you by the door and wash your feet if the person who owned the house did not have the resources to have servants it was customary that he washed his guests feet but when jesus came to the upper room they had rented it from a guy he wasn't even around he did leave on a table a basin a pitcher of water, and a towel for whoever wanted to wash feet. Now, I'm, I am confident that when Jesus entered that room, he wanted to see if his teaching on this all-important subject of servanthood had really taken, heart, really taken root in their hearts. Waiting to see who would take the place of the lowliest servant among them. But rather than somebody stepping up and volunteering to wash feet, they began to all argue who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He didn't say a word. He got up, 
took the towel, girded his waist, put some water from the pitcher into a basin, and went around the room and washed their feet. That was the background to chapter 13. You know the story. You can read it again on your own. But Jesus earlier had taught them the principle of greatness in God's kingdom in Matthew 20, probably other places. Now he demonstrates for them the principle of greatness by his example, John 13, verses 4 to 17. Now once again, as I said, to open up this message in the course of giving them this final discourse, the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the one who made all of us, who knows us better than anyone else, gives them and us the secret to living a happy, fulfilled life here on earth. Let's read these verses again, starting with verse 12. John 13, verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garment, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, for us, not literally, but whatever a task is that nobody else wants to do, that's what we should be volunteering for. Maybe it's, you know, cleaning the toilets or doing something that nobody else wants to do. You see what I've done. You should be washing each other's feet. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than, than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So once more, Jesus is teaching us that the secret of living a happy and fulfilled life is becoming a servant to others, and that the byproduct of serving others is that you experience happiness or joy in your own life. However, the words of Jesus also imply the contrary principle. A life lived in op the opposite way, a life of selfishness and pursuing happiness as a direct pursuit, stepping on people to get where you want to go, uh, making sure that you're number one and it's all about you, that's going to produce a life of emptiness and despair. Guys, I don't know where it really started happening, but somehow our modern American Christianity has moved from being Christ-centered and others-centered to being self-centered, which I and many others believe is probably the biggest reason so many Christians are, seem empty and unhappy inside. Now, let me just stop and say this. If you're feeling a little empty and sad inside, I am not saying you're, you're carnal and selfish. That's why you're feeling that way. There's a lot of things going on right now. There's a lot of things happening. The devil is ramping up his attacks like I've never seen before. I mean, people are going through different kinds of uh, inward anxieties and depressions and things like that. Or they've got a sick uh, parent they're trying to take care of or a handicapped child or something that is, you know, I get that. I'm just talking in general terms. When we talk about the world around us, our society in general, the problem in our society is that so many are pursuing happiness as a direct pursuit, not realizing that, again, it's a byproduct of knowing Jesus and being a servant to all. Guys, this is especially true with this millennial generation. Millennial generation. There has never been a generation in American history that has been less churched and more self-focused and unhappy as are millennials, those born from 81 to 95. Although Generation Z is in hot pursuit, those born 95 to 2015. See, their whole lives, millennials, Generation Z, I'm a boomer. My generation gave birth to the millennials. The Zs are our grandkids, all right? What was the boomers? 55 to 63 or 45 to 63? Something like that. You can Google it. But this generation of millennials in particular and Generation Z was, are getting older. From the time they were born, they were spoon-fed a philosophy that nobody mattered but them. I mean, they were the only ones that really mattered. Happiness was your right and blah, 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 on and on it goes, right? 
And these kids bought into it. It was all about their happiness. All about what they felt they needed to pursue. And they didn't think of too many others. And the tragedy of that, pursuing happiness as a direct pursuit, robbed them of everything that makes life worth living. Joy, peace, purpose, fulfillment, and the list goes on. you got to hear this. you got to hear this. I came across a letter that was published not long ago from one such millennial. I think she's a, a, a woman. I think it, this is a woman, I should say. The title of this article is Millennials, the Dying Children. Listen to what this gal says. It's amazing. She said, I'm one of the oldest millennials. Something terrifying is happening to us. The oldest, oldest of us are rapidly closing in on 40. We are the least married, least fertile generation in history. Really, only 30% of people under the age of 40 are married. We started coming of age in about 2003. And economic conditions were nowhere close to as bad as it had been in the 1930s, 40s, or even the 70s. People before us have had it a lot worse. But she, she says that nowhere close to as bad as it was in the 1930s, 40s, and 70s when people had little trouble marrying and procreating. Yet here we are, aging out of our ability to enjoy childhood and feeling death creep up on us. The video games have grown boring. The TV marathons are suffocating. The candy tastes like ashes in our mouths. We're committing suicide and consuming antidepressants at record rates. We try to accumulate even more, and it fails to make us happy. We don't know why, and we don't know how we got here. She says, let me try to explain it to you. My entire life, the only message I got from school, church, college, and the media was that every decision I made, from what degree to pursue, to where I lived, to whether or not I was going to marry, was with the goal of having a maximally pleasurable life. Pleasure was the chief goal. True, as someone raised in a conservative church, I was warned against fornication and substance abuse, but these were framed in terms of interfering with a good life. Don't take drugs and have sex before marriage because it'll mess up your ability to have a fun, great life. In the 1990s, there was no difference between Christians and non-Christians in that general outlook. Both Christians and non-Christians were equally horrified at the notion that a bright young woman might not end up maximizing her full potential, which meant putting 40 hours a week into a cubicle. Both warned her against getting married too young because marriage could cut short a promising career. Evangelicals, for their part, indulged in a pious fiction that the unmarried 25-year-olds in the church were all virgins, but still, everyone agreed that the proper way to treat the world is as your playground. It's sad to watch my generation collapse in denialism and fear as our bodies begin the process of dying. The men become bugmen. What in the world is a bugman? I had to turn to the Urban Dictionary. I knew it was a slang term. Here's what the Urban Dictionary, how they define bug men. You ready? Bug men. The rootless, lifeless metropolitan drones who have a permanent thousand-yard stare due to an existence void of any meaning other than waiting for the next iPhone. Wow, that's pretty depressing. She must know a few bug men. I didn't realize that was even a term. Men in my generation become bug men, living to consume, filling shelf after shelf with toys their adult brains can't find amusement in because they know of nothing else to do. The women are in a panic, desperately trying to hold on to their evaporating youth, trying to prove to themselves that a woman can be just as sexy and alluring at 35 as she was at 23. Now my generation is absolutely miserable. Because we're reaching that age where your brain shifts modes from consume and copulate to prepare your offspring for adulthood, and we don't understand what is actually happening. Women of my generation have been told their entire lives that loneliness is a psychological disorder, that children are parasites, and that exhausting yourself for 40 hours a week at work is really the meaning of life. It turns out that continuing to live as though you were a teenager does not, in fact, bequeath eternal youth. 
For my generation, there is not really a path back out. We're stuck, she thinks. Obviously, she's not a Christian. But for my generation, there's not really a path back out. All the social institutions of this country have been detonated in the quest for money and self or via the hysterical condemnation of every kind of organic social relation as sexist or racist. In the cities, nobody knows anybody. Professional associations and social clubs are borderline non-existent. Nobody knows or cares about anyone, and nobody knows how to start. It's so sick and twisted that my generation uses the word community to refer to people who buy the same consumer products, like going to see a movie means you're part of the Star Wars community. Even churches have been consolidated into massive theme parks where anonymous masses of people go to be entertained. Millennials need to accept that the values inculcated in us were a load of, load of horse crap, her words. We, we've been fed, you know, a, a bill of goods. We were lied to that this was the way to live that was going to bring us fulfillment and happiness, only to look back and go, we were lied to. I don't see that happening. I don't see us backing out of this or changing as we're mostly upset that we can't live the idyllic lives of self-indulgence the boomers promised us, parents of millennials, even suggesting that divorce should be harder, marriage should be younger, and women were built to be mothers and not office drones, causing the average millennial to dissolve into hysterical outrage. Just mention something like that to the millennials, and they just they can't deal with it. We're the generation that thinks Having a country is racist, and the most important things about space exploration is making sure a hijab-clad Muslims are a part of it. We're so probably not going to snap out of it. We'll be buried in our Batman coffin surrounded by our Xbox games, end quote. Actually, the article was larger than that. I just <laughs> cut it down. It's pretty depressing as is. Guys, listen, we're done. Let me just say this. This is a generation crying out for help, obviously. And the only way we as Christians are going to be able to help them, listen to me, this is a generation that needs Jesus. This young woman doesn't know that what she needs is Jesus. Sure, she's been victimized by a godless ideology that she thought was the truth. Is, is all hope gone? Of course not. What she and others like her need to fill that void, that emptiness, is Jesus. The only ones proclaiming Jesus are the Christians. But we're not going to help anybody if we don't get our heads on straight. What do I mean? Well, we have to stop following the mindset of the world in our quest for happiness and start living with the mind of Christ, the mind of a servant. In some ways, this letter reminds me of the words of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he spent most of his life looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And at the end of his life, he finally comes back full circle and realizes that the only happiness in life is God. Is God, serving God. As a young guy, he, was, he had a relationship with God. But he walked away from that, thinking that maybe the world had something else in the way of happiness for him. He comes back at the end of his life and writes Ecclesiastes. You can read that book, especially chapter the last two chapters. But in it, he tells us, he realized that a life lived for this life only will lead to frustration and futility. And the constant realization that everything in that kind of a life is emptiness and vanity. Didn't he say that throughout the book? I tried this, emptiness and vanity. I did that, emptiness. Nothing produced happiness or fulfillment. And he comes to the conclusion that life lived under the sun, that's life without God, worldly life, is always going to lead to emptiness Futility, frustration. It's only a life lived, listen, in the Son, capital S-O-N. A life committed to and living for Jesus that is going to matter at all. Look, if this young woman was here today and she dropped on me what she said in this article, I would sit her down, look her in the eyes and say, look, you were lied to. The God of this world, the devil himself, lied to you and your generation. They ripped you off for all these years from true happiness, 
fulfillment, purpose, and so on. The good news is you don't have to let it go another day. What you need is to accept, repent of your sins, receive Jesus into your heart, surrender your life fully to him, and begin to live a life of purpose and fruitfulness and victory and joy. That's what you need. Only that perspective, guys, will allow us as Christians to live in such a way that we can help people like that. I mean, the devil has really pulled one over on us too. We've allowed it. We know better. We know the word. We're true born-again Christians. So what happened that we're, so many Christians are unhappy? Because somewhere along the line, they have bought into the lie just like the world has. That happiness is not who you know. It's what you have. Wow. You know, Jesus told, told us to go into all the world and share the good news. A lot of unbelievers look at us and we don't look like we have any good news. We look like we're living on bad news. We got to get our acts together. We got to get our eyes off of the world. We got to start living with our focus on heaven. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the, uh, in the world, Paul said. We need to start serving each other. So what, uh, how exactly does that look? How about this? How about you start with your marriage? You didn't see that one coming, did you? How about you start with your spouse? How about you come to our marriage workshop this Friday evening, Saturday morning? We'll give you some things to think about and to apply. This is the secret to a happy life. A life lived for Jesus and serving others in his name. We'll pick that up next time. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us, for your, your word, which tells us how to live that we might enjoy a joyful, happy, fulfilled, fruitful life. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.